Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. Today, sitting down with Coach Trevor Connor in the studio, and we have a special coach guest. Every athlete faces challenges now and again. I know I have. Same here, and it can be hard to get good advice, and everyone has their own opinion. Right, like that guy on the group ride. I'm not sure if I can trust his advice. Exactly, perfect example. At Fast Talk Labs, we have the solution to bad endurance advice. Visit FastTalkLabs.com and schedule a complimentary solution session. During this free session, we'll talk about your goals and your challenges, and then help you decide on the next step toward success. Get our good advice. Schedule your consult today at FastTalkLabs.com. Yanis Muzinj. Yanis, welcome to Fast Talk. Hi, hello. Happy to be here. Great to have you on the show. And I'm going to briefly give a little background story about how Giannis happened to come to us at Fast Talk. It was actually a an athlete that he coaches that is also a fan of Fast Talk and Fast Talk Labs, Velibor Dokic. Uh, he reached out and really had some amazing things to say about Giannis in terms of his coaching ability, the way that he um, ha- has worked with this athlete. And, and Velibor... Uh, basically said, I really want to surprise Giannis for his 40th birthday. I want to try to get him on the show. And I thought, well, okay, but who is this guy, Giannis? Does he have any, <laughs> what's his coaching background? So I did a little research and and here we are. Giannis, you own Train to Win Coaching. It's a Latvian-based company, but you're, you're coaching athletes from uh, lots of different countries. And you have an interesting background in that you were once the CEO of a, uh, a corporation, and then you've transitioned into coaching. So maybe give us just a brief overview of how that how that came to be, and and what skills you bring from being a CEO into the coaching world. Yes, uh, it was it was uh, <laughs> a long transition, I would say, because I'm a full time coach, I guess, for six years now. It's it's actually already hard to count for me. A lot of us coaches end up uh, being in love with with what you do. And I hope my ex-employer doesn't uh, doesn't listen to this podcast because I have never done uh, my work as, uh, how do you say, as... I think you're trying to say you're putting more of your heart and soul into this than you did with your former employer. Is that what you're trying to get at? Oh yeah, for sure. Like uh, I'm, I'm, I, I was, I was never that concerned about the result. Although I, I had the uh, really like a key position in the company, and and um, yeah, here I'm, I'm, I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of never on my job, but uh, you're kind of, kind of always on your job. So yeah, but uh, actually, I think it helped me a lot because especially at the beginning, uh, because I was learning a lot, because this is what you used to do basically when when uh, when you're head of the company, because you, you should know a lot of things and, and search for new ways how to improve your, your workability and so on. And uh, yeah, it kind of, uh, the analytics part got me hooked because I basically started since the since the power meter became available. So that was uh, a uh, big thing to me. And um, I really enjoyed the planning part because it is really, I would say, really, really similar to how it's done in a business world because you always 
have to plan ahead and and you should always have kind of a multiple strategies like your plan a b and c and and you always look at your kpis uh you always manage people uh, or manage kind of events or what's happening with all that so uh yeah it, it it's it's uh it's what kind of propelled me forward ever since and and uh yeah i'm really curious about where uh, about basically about human excellence. And, and I think for all of us coaches, I can speak that one thing that motivates us when your athlete is succeeding and achieving his goal, be it like, I don't know, in, in, in national championships, world championships, or just doing his first century, this is what kind of, uh, gives me reward of, of doing that. And, and to be honest, in, in, in this corporate structure, you didn't feel that you didn't, didn't feel the sense of uh, appreciation of your work, whereas uh, being an endurance coach, seeing people succeed is is really what made me in love uh, of being a good coach. And uh, it happened really, really, I would say naturally, because uh, people were somehow finding out what I'm doing. I, had, I haven't started this as a, as a business project. It just like happened one day. Hmm. So yeah, that's that. It, it's great. I mean, it's, you can tell. Uh, it sounds like you found your passion in your home and, and this is, uh, you've brought a lot of great skill sets uh, over from the former world that you lived in and now you've combined those skills with, with a, a passion. So it's great to hear. Yeah, and I'm, I am right there with you. There is no better feeling than seeing an athlete who has been working for a year or longer for a particular goal that they, they question whether they can achieve it and, and when they accomplish it, whether it's winning nationals, worlds, or just finishing a century, that, that sense of accomplishment that they have, it, there, there's no better feeling as a coach than to see that. Yeah, for sure. We, we want to get to the, the listener questions quickly, but that's kind of you know the, the sense that I got when, when Velibor, one of your athletes, wrote in and, and said, I, I really want to get Giannis on the show. I think he'd be great for the show. He was very um, passionately describing why you were such a good coach. So uh, thank you, Velibor, for, for reaching out and getting Giannis on the program. <laughs> By the way, it was a total surprise for me because uh, he actually called on my wife's phone at my birthday and i'm i'm no like I, I i never celebrate my birthdays basically ever uh and this was like a uh, absolute and total surprise because she gave me a phone and i see like he was facetiming her i see his face and and um and i'm a long time listener by the way uh of, of of your podcast as well because i've sent him your podcast as an explanation to i can't remember actually what we were discussing about but i sent him the the episode and then it kind of gets started he was starting to listening to your podcast and then the, the next thing next thing i know that he tells me that uh, yeah i have to be on the podcast so yeah <laughs> it was by far the best uh, best birthday present for my fourth 40th birthday so, excellent yeah. thank I you Oliver, for that as well yeah that's great well we are quite honored and very happy to have you here and i will say so we we Put up a Word document with the uh, questions, and you wrote in your answers. I read through your answers last night and just went, wow, I, I don't think I even need to be there tomorrow. Your answers are, are fantastic, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. Let's get into our first question here. Uh, this one has to do with, with uh, something I know that you uh, love to think about, uh, which is time trialing and time trial pacing specifically. This question comes from Ernie Blankenship. He's in Independence, Missouri. In the US. He writes, I have a hard time pacing in time trials. 
Some people recommend that I have a steady pace throughout the effort. Others are adamant that I need to be to vary my pace given the terrain and technicality of the course. For example, surging over hills, accelerating out of corners to get back up to t top speed as quickly as possible. What is your advice, and does it depend on the level of the rider? Giannis, I'll turn it over to you to start. What do you think? People who are saying that he has to kind of uh, approach it a bit differently or depending on course and, and at a variety of power outputs are, are, are the correct way. A lot of people do think that, that time trials are written at uh, just one power output. And actually they are almost, I would say I've come across only a few of them where it's actually it's very flat, like pancake flat, and you have only just a turnaround point and basically no wind. But uh, most of the time trials are actually written at not like one constant power. So you basically have to adapt your strategy to, first of all, the course, uh, the, the weather forecast, of course, because uh, the, if you're less aerodynamic, you should always kind of try to gain more time when you have a headwind. If you are a really good climber, and and uh, it happens to your course happens to have a climb in it then most probably you are you should be concentrating on that climb rather than than doing 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 the climb at a mm, constant power output you should actually go over your threshold and try to kind of recover on on the downhill or if uh, you have really technical course and you happen to be a really technical rider then then it may help you a lot and and you should like concentrate on on this part of the course so uh, yeah, I think there is no right, right way how to ride a time trial. There is a certain way and pacing strategy that you need to adapt to a uh, to a course. And uh, to be honest, I don't think that um, it would be dependent on on riders' ability because the the pros do the same, and and the amateurs, if they do want to race well, they pretty much should adapt the, the kind of the same strategy. The more you know about the course. And the more you know about yourself as a rider, your abilities and, and uh, your strengths and weaknesses, then uh, it's pretty much we, what you need to take into account uh, thinking about the pacing. question that comes to mind for me, to, to, for those that um, are maybe less familiar with the discipline, and they hear you say, you, sometimes you, know, you're, you're, uh, you're have, you have that climber's ability, so you focus on the climb in a given course, and you want to go above threshold. Uh, how do you gauge how much above threshold you can go? Is there a simple answer to that? There's no simple answer to that. Um, wh what I would say is testing is most probably the correct answer. Uh, and uh, okay, maybe if you have, have looked at your, your power duration curve or your abilities or done some testing, you know, some uh, lab testing, you may find a, uh, an exact number to, uh, to target. Uh, but actually, I would say it's, it's in my opinion, it's better done, uh, done just by testing in, in kind of a real life scenario. But usually it's, it's uh, like nobody who, who rides time trials in a decent way on a, or on a decent level, they're not a sprinter. So uh, you most probably should look at the uh, kind of durations or excuse me, uh, percentages 
let's say 10 or maybe 15 uh, percent above your threshold but again it, it depends if you have a really short climb and you just need to carry over the speed uh it might be a lot more than than like 20 uh, percent above your threshold the thing i'll add to that is yeah you have to remember time traveling is a uh, i like to say it's a sport of subtlety so yes you you don't want to pretend you're sitting on a trainer in erg mode and just try to hold one wattage absolutely there are times to push it a little bit times to back off a little bit but let's say your threshold is 300 watts you don't want to be hitting six seven hundred watts at any point on that race when we're talking about you you hit a hill and you, you bring the pace up a bit you're talking 330 maybe 340 watts don't try to hit that hill at 500 watts you're, you're going to pay that price yeah, it seems like there's just a narrower power band within which you want to stay. You don't want to have spikes well outside of that power range. You don't really want to dip too low. Of course, there might be some coasting at times. Um, what about the this? This is um, something that I think people struggle with too, and it and it gets to pacing is the the start in a time trial. You know, some people have different strategies sprint like heck to get up to that speed that they want to then maintain or the let's not go crazy and go into the red at the start and and get on the back foot so Giannis do you have any particular thoughts on the start of a time trial oh sure I can actually give you a one example of one of my athletes uh he is um his FTP was at the time about uh, 360 watts. And uh, he was like decent time trialist. And he starts this one time trial and he finishes it and sends me a message afterwards and, and says like everything was really, really bad. Like I've suffered like hell when I when I finished. And, and uh, I almost instantly look at his, his power file and I see like for first three or four minutes, he was doing like 420 or something. So I've called him back and, and said, basically, your ego was bigger than, <laughs> than, uh, than your head at right, that right. point of time. Yeah. So yeah, the, the starts are actually, I think, the worst because you have this adrenaline rush and, and um, you want to do better than, or you actually, at that point, you think you can do better. So I usually tell that you should always like keep a close eye on your power at at least first three to four minutes then when you settle in it's really easy to find your rhythm but if you uh, kind of overcook it uh, as soon as you start well basically you you're finishing as as this athlete i mentioned so yeah the the starts and especially by the way the starts and the tailwind are the worst because then you have this false i would say false sense of uh, of speed that you are capable to sustain i wish i could remember who originated this expression but there there's I've heard this a few times. There are three rules to time trialing. Start out easy, start out easy, start out easy. Trevor, do you want to talk about physiologically why you don't want to go too too deep or into the red or how, whatever terminology you want to use? Well, time trialing is all about that trying to sit at that highest sustainable power. So there, there's Moments where you go a little above, there's moments where you're, you're below, but overall it's that the highest level that you can sustain without blowing up for whatever the distance is. And if you start going way over your range, 
you're going to have acid buildup. You're 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 basically going to start tapping into that anaerobic capacity, which has a, has a limit to it, and you're going to pay for that later in the race because there isn't really an opportunity to back down and recover. It's not like a road race where you can attack and then if the field catches you, you hop in, sit there at 150 watts, 200 watts for a little bit, let your, your let your legs recover for your next attack. If you do that and and, and the muscles start shutting down in a time trial, you're stuck. I think the the word is you're very exposed out there by yes. yourself. You can't you can't hide from it. <laughs> if you've gone out too hard, you're very ex- you've exposed yourself, and there's there can be no coming back from it sometimes. So what other thing I can add? Because you brought up the you know push the hills a little bit harder, take the descents a little bit easier. There actually is some physics behind this. Mm-hmm. So people will talk about as speed increases, the amount of power required, it's a logarithmic relationship. So actually, the, this, uh, there is a formula for the, the power that's required, an, an aerodynamics formula. If you look at that formula, people say uh, its velocity is cubic. So basically, uh, the, the way to think of it is to go from it takes three times as much power to go from 31 to 32 kilometers as it takes to go from 30 to 31. It's actually not quite true. It's actually relative velocity squared times absolute velocity. So this factors in the wind. So relative velocity, if you're traveling at 30 kilometers an hour, but you have a 10 kilometer an hour tailwind, then your relative velocity is 22 kilometers an hour. Your absolute velocity is 32. This takes me back to high school algebra problems. Yeah, and, sorry. Yeah, no, no, lots it's of fine. fun. <laughs> so, the point being, when you are going at those really high speeds, so if you're on a slight downhill and you're going 55 kilometers an hour, to get a little extra speed actually takes a huge amount of power. Right. Where if you're going up a hill and, and you're going much slower, it actually takes the the increase in power required to get bigger gains is far, far less. So you want to take advantage of those moments. You don't want to be sitting there killing yourself when you're already going 60 kilometers an hour just to get those couple extra seconds. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. Very good. Well, let's, let's move on to our next question. It actually pertains to time trialing as well, but more in the realm of the time trial position. This question comes from Marcus Clifton in Cork, Ireland. He writes, being a bit of an experimenter and a physics geek, I like to work on my own time trial position. I've read many things from many people on the balance between aerodynamics and power output. I always like to ask experienced coaches that simple question. When you're working with an athlete on his or her TT position, how do you address the balance that must be struck between these two characteristics? And will you modify based on the type and length of the course course or do you prefer to find the quote unquote best position and stick with it Giannis what are your thoughts here actually finding this uh, the best position is is already really really hard so tinkering around that is uh, sometimes useful but to be honest I think that um, you should always try to at least this is what I do with with my athletes I always try to at least keep their uh, their power output about the same, or kind of try to reach the the best possible power, 
and then go lower with with the aerodynamics meaning like as as long as you are able to push your watts or at least close to your your maximum watts or let's say your threshold watts then you need to look at the power because usually in some cases of course when you have uh, <clears throat> somebody who's uh, let's say uh, with a really really high threshold with 400 something plus watts uh, then a trade-off of uh, 10 to 15 watts uh, for increase uh, or excuse me decrease in your your aerodynamic resistance is useful because uh, he or she will gain an extra speed but if your uh, if your threshold is 200 watts then maybe those 10 to 15 watts are really really key in order to keep your your uh, your speed up so uh yeah it's 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 kind of a balancing act almost always and of course it depends uh, depends on 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 a distance one is racing but i would not change like if if i if i have an athlete who's racing a relatively short time trials uh let's say 20 or 40k time trial or even even shorter than that let's say uh, most probably he's racing at more uh, aggressive position uh, most probably that he can sustain only for that uh, amount of time uh, whereas if there's somebody who is who's doing a full ironman distance uh, and has to run after that uh, most probably you'll 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 lean more towards the position being more comfortable and sustainable with less uh, kind of power or or uh, strength required because you actually need to run after that but I wouldn't change I wouldn't change the position of somebody who is who is let's say a, uh, a triathlete racing full Ironman distance for for those shorter events because uh, you need to train in order to be efficient at that position you you need to spend considerable time amount training into that training in that position uh because i think uh everyone who has ever raced uh, a time trial on a time trial bike knows that this is not uh that you are good instantly some people right. are but uh a lot of people are are not that well adapted uh and not adapted fast to, to this position so uh, yeah finding this position is already a kind of a key and then you can uh try to adjust it uh in in uh, minor details i would say uh overhaul of position is is never a good thing in my opinion i've certainly had cases where athletes don't own a time trial bike they're they're going to a time trial or they're going to a stage race with a time trial get their hands on a tt bike a couple of days before the race and go this is gonna make me faster and my answer is <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> right you you need yeah. to put that time in on the bike and you can't expect if you haven't been putting the time in to hop on a tt bike and and suddenly be faster right right it, it, not not the greatest comparison i wouldn't say but um in my very limited experience uh th th this kind of illustrates your point trevor you know, I knew what my threshold power was on a road bike going up a climb. Uh, and then when we did testing, as we were preparing me for the hour record, uh, I honed in on what my threshold was in the TT position. And it was a good probably 50 watts lower, you know, which is a substantial percentage wise, uh, a, a very substantial number. Um, and 
I just didn't have the time to get used to that position. There's a lot to it. There's years of work trying to get used to that uh, position and be able to put out the same amount of power. And I don't know that everybody ever gets there. There's very few people in the world that probably put out more power in the time trial position than they do on a, a road bike. There are some, and they're probably pros, and they probably grew up racing uh, the pursuit on the track or something like that. But yeah, it's a it's a long process, and you cannot expect to get on a TT bike, get into that relatively aerodynamic position, and maintain power without some work on the bike and off the bike, I would say. Yadis, I really like your your philosophy on this, uh, continuing with what Chris is saying, that um, it's one thing to hop into a, a wind tunnel and for five minutes be in a position and they go, well, this is the most aerodynamic you can be. The question is, when you're out on the road, can you sustain that? Yeah. Can you put out the power in that position? And I love that you say, you, you have to look at, can I hold this? And then be willing to put the work into getting comfortable and, and be able to ride in that position. And a great example I can think of is, is Swain Tuff, who got the year he got second at the world championships and should have won it. He, he had a bike mechanical and they had to switch him onto a road bike. So he finished the, the race on a road bike. Uh, even though he was a great time trialist leading up to that event, he was putting in 1,200 kilometers a month on his time trial bike. That's a lot. That's a lot of time. <laughs> yep. So, so Giannis, to turn it back to you for a second, um, position, dramatic changes to the position are not something that you're keen to do because it does take a lot of time and you change one thing and it changes another. You know, there's a lot of variables there. Are there other things that you would, and I know this might be a big topic unto itself, but are there other things that you would turn to if somebody's trying to improve at the time trial besides position? Would you would you look to other things first, and what would those be? Oh, for sure. There, I wouldn't say there. There, nowadays, I would say there's a, quite a lot of uh, low hanging fruit you can go for. Uh, first of all, it's, it's okay. If we, if we're not talking about it, like directly about the position, it is, uh, like the way you actually can hold your head, which is of course, part of the position. Um, then the helmet comes into the play, uh, meaning how actually, um, compact, I don't know whether it's the right word, uh, I'm mm -hmm. trying to, to, to find, but, uh, yeah, how really narrow and compact you can get uh in your front end uh then there is i think which is the the most uh unexpensive thing you can actually change to be faster in the bike is is your tires and adjust your tire pressure accordingly uh because still there are a lot of and actually to be honest a lot of my my athletes i can um, i kind of know from from what they are doing when they're speaking to me they are racing at uh really high uh tire pressures <laughs> which is which is not fast and and almost i think everybody knows that everybody know that it takes it takes a lot of reminding though because it's just one of those things that's been so ingrained in people for so long i believe that they just don't get it that dropping pressure a little bit not a lot you're not running 20 psi in your time trial tires but some uh 
and there's there we did an entire episode on tire pressure if you want to nerd out on that so i remember in the in the 90s when time trialers were showing up with 19c 21c tires and since they were tubulars they were pumping them up to 150 160 psi right exactly yeah don't need to do that anymore <laughs> no no so yeah there's there's a lot of uh kind of yeah this this low-hanging fruit that you can address uh so yeah your your tires your uh chain which is uh, pretty easy to wax nowadays uh actually your your skin suit which is really important uh, element of of you being fast how it fits you and usually they are a bit too uh like um a bit too large for for rider that's that's at least what i see uh so yeah there's there's the, there are those things that actually will make you faster and won't uh necessarily change your position that dramatically all right great let's take our next question it comes from maria hopkins she's out in california she writes i'm preparing for my first cycling race at the end of the summer I've taken the inside test, and it tells me that I have a VO2 max of 47.5, a VLA max of 0.55, and a threshold of 2.9 watts per kilo. How should these numbers inform my training plan? If I understand correctly, it would be helpful to lower my VLA VLA max given the type of riding I'll be doing in this race. So how can one bring down their VLA max without jeopardizing their strength they may have? Giannis, I know that you are an experienced uh, inside tester. You've done this with many athletes in the past. Um, do you have uh, some words of wisdom here for Maria, who is new to the sport and is just sort of ramping up um, her training and has this baseline of data now? Uh, if Maria is new to the sport, I presume that she is not training uh, that much, at least not currently. And I think one of the things uh, I've seen in my athletes as well is is like working on your fat max and, and actually going a bit longer. Uh, that will uh, most certainly decrease the the VLA and and add to to add to the VO two max as well. It depends. It depends on the race, of course, because if you need a lot of um, this. Uh, top end or high end power if if it's like a criterium race or something like that then it's probably wise to to think to uh, or think of keeping keeping the vla at the same level basically then again it's it's uh it's really a hard task i would say uh first she would go for for the training volume introduce some some torque work which usually helps uh helps quite a bit and uh, maybe at some point uh, some dietary manipulations like uh, low carb or depleted rides. But uh, if she's new to sport, I wouldn't say this is this wouldn't be the the first thing I would I would uh, try to to touch. So ramping up the uh, training hours with some 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 torque work, and in order to keep the VLA basically uh, anything to do and i would say uh, she, she's a woman and and for for uh, for females that works really well the uh, uh or like time in a gym time under under the the heavy loads is what uh facilitates keeping keeping the vla where it is and and if it normally decreases 
just by increasing the the uh, the amount of training you do i would say i, I would be good with that because uh, then you'll gain more than than you actually lose because as with anything in training it's it's kind of a balancing act you need to uh trade one thing for for some other a strategy she can she can adapt at least that next few months or so in terms of the 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 torque work that you speak of do you when you prescribe that for an athlete do you um tell them go out and ride in a certain gear and try to stay in that one gear all day long as if their bike was a setup as a single speed bike or do you have them do um hill repeats at low cadence what what are the types of low low uh low cadence high torque work that you like to prescribe i usually do this in in uh, in terms of cadence so i don't don't uh, i i've not that b- bothered uh, at what gearing they are uh, although i usually ride th- uh, 5311 uh, which uh, <laughs> which yeah. i'm just used to yeah that's doing yeah but um, it, it's it's always the the cadence target basically i would say usually 50 60 rpm is is what uh, what works the best uh, this is low enough to actually uh, to produce the necessary torque usually, uh, and it's not high enough to, to, to be in a normal range of cadence, because if somebody is starting out, most probably, uh, her normal cadence is about 80 RPM. That's what usually happens with uh, somebody who's just starting out there, not instantly at like 95 or hundred RPMs. Uh, so it is below their kind of normal cadence. Um, and, uh, yeah, hill repeats are, are, I would say the best, or if you don't have any hills, then then headwind works uh, works well as well. But this this is a kind of an interval training, so I always I've I've uh, never never prescribed anybody to ride the whole day at one gear. Uh, I'm not even sure if if that would be really useful. That would be painful for sure. I'm not sure about uh, how it would translate into training gains, but uh, yeah, hill repeats uh three minutes on one minute off or something like that because if she is new to the sport we need to take into account her ability of joints taking uh taking on this this uh this pressure uh, therefore uh not a really long yeah you could you need to accumulate the time in this this low cadence or with the torque work but uh, not in a one go, like not 40 minutes at low cadence, at least not, uh, uh, not at the beginning. Yeah. And to, to continue with that point, this is something to be careful about. Watch for any sort of knee pain. So when I give this work to my athletes, I always tell them, if you feel knee pain, stop it. And then let's, let's discuss. Um, certainly you want to make sure you've been fit on the bike. You, you want to make sure you're in a position where you can handle this. I took us a little off track there with the question about torque. Trevor, Getting back to the original question, um, any thoughts there on these numbers and how this person, Maria, would uh, want to train? We talk about the seesaw effect between VLA max and VO2 max, where if you're improving one, you, you tend to lose the other. Well, I, I would say that seesaw effect is, is true with everybody. It's most true when you're at a very high level. So when you're talking with about a pro cyclist or a high-level cyclist, they do need to make that choice. I think if you're very new to cycling, you can improve everything because right. you're, you're starting at, at a lower level. So if you're brand new to cycling, I wouldn't be worrying too much about the, should I be focusing 
more on the VO2 max, should be focusing more on the VLA max at the cost of the other, you, you do have that opportunity to say, no, I can kind of improve all this. And, and that brings up a, a, a bigger question in my mind, and I'll ask it on Maria's half, which is, assume, I don't know how new she is to the sport, but I'm going to assume she's quite new um, if she hasn't ever done a race. Should she be focusing on numbers at all, or should she really just the number that that Giannis was most concerned about, it seemed, was volume. She just needs to ride more to get fitter. And um, these are great baseline numbers, but can you just, would you recommend she just kind of ignore them, Giannis? I wouldn't say that you should ignore numbers uh, because what I see in in uh, most of the cases, uh, actually the amateurs or the ones who are just starting out, they're just going out at like, just too hard, basically. So uh, without, uh, or in order not to kill themselves, uh, or like for, you know, that Maria to progress gradually and not harm the, harm herself, I would say she just need to remember this one number, which is most probably her fat max. And, uh, and that's basically it. Although it is somewhat uh, arbitrary because I think as Trevor said already, most probably after a while it will change she will get better and then uh then most probably she should look at numbers more closely but uh yeah uh this one kind of zone is uh, in my opinion uh, important but uh yeah not, not not like looking at your garmin and watching watching the numbers uh, not go above your your fat max zone that's uh, that's not what usually not what helps somebody to ride longer and, and enjoy cycling more what i really like about what you're saying is uh, uh, you know i agree with you that when you are new to cycling uh, training doesn't need to be overly complex and I do get concerned sometimes when I see coaches that feel they have to give a, a brand new cyclist a sort of sophisticated plan. You have to give somebody who's got 10 years of experience and is racing at the, the pro level. That's not the case at all. When you're new to cycling, as you said, you just want to make sure you don't kill yourself because you're going hard every single day. You, you want some intelligence to it, but it doesn't need to be that sophisticated. All right. Our next question. This one comes from Clara Steiner. She's in Stuttgart, Germany, and she writes, My coach is a stickler for the details. If he schedules a three-hour ride for me and I do a four-hour ride, he is not happy. If I do less than I should, he is not happy. If I do something that I'm satisfied with, he will often ask why I'm satisfied and then find something that makes me realize what I've done is not as good as I think. Maybe that sounds harsh, but I personally find it very motivating. However, it took a long time to get to this point where this, quote, tough love approach felt beneficial. So Clara's question is, how do I know that this type of coaching dynamic is the best for me? Is it possible that I would thrive or see even bigger improvements with someone who wasn't such a stickler? Giannis, I'll, I'll turn this over to you. I will note that uh, when Velibor uh, originally reached out to me, he, um, I think this is a great question for you because he kind of said that you were a bit of a stickler in a good way and he, he liked it. Um, so is that true? And, and how would you answer, uh, Clara's, uh, question here? That's really true. Uh, I'm, I'm not giving out my, my kudos and Strava just for any random session. That's, uh, <clears throat> gotcha. Understood. That's, 
Yeah. So if I actually do that, then there's something I, I consider to be really good or useful about the ride. Uh, but like a- answering Clara's question, I think if she is still with the coach, then, then, uh, then it kind of works be tough love. If you're a good coach, most probably you are a good psychologist as well. And, and uh, this is my, my own philosophy as well. If you want to be really good uh, at this uh, coaching game, you need to be a two in one person, kind of a data analyst and, and psychologist as well. And you, you need to know your athlete and what drives uh, uh, him or her for, forward. And uh, for sure, sometimes you need this tough love and, and uh, you need to give somebody a really hard talk about something that they do. Uh, and I think uh, Clara's coach is doing a good thing that, that he or she is asking Clara why her thoughts are, are the way they are. Because sometimes athletes, if especially if they don't know the idea behind the session, they kind of tend to think, okay, I need to do four hours uh uh, four hours on the bike, whereas uh, you as a coach say you need to do four easy hours on a bike. And if you go hammer out those four hours, of course, your coach won't be happy. So uh, communication and understanding the reason why behind that, I think, is is really a key. And I have always said and and, uh, and truly believe to that, that I, I have my, my athlete's interest. So I always act as a, uh, a person who is in, in direct interest of, of this person getting better than, than she was, uh, or he was before that. If it takes a uh, somewhat tougher approach, then it, it's what you need to do. Uh, because uh, I'm, uh, I, as I said, like I've, I've, I've done the same basically. I've, I've, uh, I've asked those questions to my athletes and I said like, like you are wrong. Because this is not what it's intended to to do. I mean, the the, the training session. Uh, it's hard to judge whether whether somebody would be better or not. But um, yeah, yeah, you kind of need to be a a uh, keeper of the cog, so to say, and and uh, see that your athlete actually is following the plan. Because people are inherently lazy. Uh, it's just the way human nature is, and part of a coach is being a. Uh, a mentor and a kind of a police officer who who keeps an eye on on, on your training peak shadow being somewhat green i think that clara is fine has found a good match whether it could be better who knows uh, as long as she's training and progressing i would say it works because uh, uh coaching is partially a psychological game as well i mean you need to have this this uh uh, match with other person. The better match you have, uh, the more or the better result you'll you'll end up with. Trevor, do you are you a fan of tough love? <laughs> How do you? What's your what's your coaching personality? What's your, you know, what's the persona you bring to? And does it change between athlete from athlete to athlete? You brought up the point about as as a coach, you're almost a psychologist. I've heard that many times before. And, it's and, very and it true. is very, true. very, very true. And what I would say is there is no one approach that works for every athlete. Part of what I have found I have to do whenever I start working with a new athlete is figure out that athlete, what resonates for them and what they need. And so example I always think back to is 
we used to sh uh, be in a shared office space, and, and there was a gentleman in that space named Richard who listened to me talk to one of my athletes one afternoon. And when I hung up the phone, he went, wow, that was harsh. Mm. Like, what do you mean? He started describing, it like, you, you were being pretty hard on that athlete. And I just went, that's what he needs. That motivates him. But I have other athletes that I would never be negative with because it would completely deflate them. Mm -hmm. So I think in with each athlete, you really need to figure out what motivates them, what, what keeps them going, and give them what they need. But I'll also quote Neil Henderson. We had him in, uh, in here on the show, and we were off mic. I think we had just finished recording. He was talking about what it was athletes. I was like, wow, Neil, that's hard. And he goes... They don't pay me to be their friend. <laughs> yes, I, not to not to throw Neil under the bus or anything, but I feel like he probably trends more in the tough love kind of works for everybody. And if it and if that's not working for the athlete, that's okay because that's right. the way he does things. And if they're not going to thrive under that, they should find a different coach, right? Agreed. You know, now reading this, I mean. It's a one paragraph question here. So I certainly don't know this athlete, but from the little bit I'm reading, it sounds like she needs that tough love, but also probably needs this coach to every once in a while be encouraged. It sounds like he's always looking for something to say, you didn't do this well enough. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, just on the little bit I read, I think with this athlete, I, I would give some of that, some of that, well, no, you need to step this up. You could do this better. But it sounds like she also needs those moments of, of celebrating, saying, that was a good ride. Well done. Yeah. The occasional reward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, question for both of you, I think. Have you ever been a, uh, asked by an athlete this question? Do you think I should see a different coach? Do you think I would be better served by a different coach with a different uh, philosophy or, or methodology? Have, has anybody ever asked you that? And if so, how did you respond? Yes, I have had those questions before and uh, fortunately not a lot of them because what I learned through my experiences is, is actually in this first conversation with a potential athlete, I kind of say up front that, that <laughs> yeah, as Trevor said, uh, actually quoting Neil Hardison, you are not paying me to be your friend, you're paying me to achieve some goal or achieve a result. If at that point, athlete is kind of moving on with me, like a first, first test I give them. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, I have fed those questions even after a while. And honestly, I have advised them to, to see another coach. Like I agreed because usually when this uh, question comes up, you either feel that the chemistry is not there uh, because I'm, I know for myself, I, I really do enjoy work with, with people I'm working. That's why I don't have uh, a uh, like um, intensely uh, changing roster of athletes. They pretty much stay the same quite long with me. Uh, and I enjoy that and I, I cherish that. But then again, if somebody comes once in a while and, and sees that my work is not right for them, I'm uh, more than happy actually to, to advise them to seek another type of coach because uh, as I said, like I'm, I'm no cheerleader as well. And, and if somebody uh, sees this as a key uh, characteristic in his or her coach, I won't be the one who is providing that for, for, for this athlete. 
uh, I'm much better at, at those other things mm -hmm. and, and maybe some tough love than, than, than just, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think, as I said, like you always should represent an athlete's interest. So if there is a necessity for, to change a coach, then it's, it's what somebody, somebody needs to do, I think. I'll also add to this. I sense this in you. I certainly know this with, with Neil. There's nothing wrong with tough love, but it needs to always come with respect. Mm -hmm. And where I get concerned about coaches is when I hear about coaches that aren't showing respect to They're their athletes. They're just being critical all the time. So that's you know, when I hear about coaches that are always yelling and insulting. Sure. That's different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you can be tough on an athlete, you can drive an athlete, but you should always respect the athlete. And and I will say as a coach, if you don't respect your athlete, then you should be telling them you need to find another another coach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. This brings up a, another question in my mind. And, and honestly, this is one that I really have, have wanted to ask throughout the program, um, because I know that Giannis, in particular, you've coached athletes from a lot of different countries. Trevor, you've coached um, athletes at least in North America, but from very distinct regions. I'm curious to know, to dive into that a little bit, do you see trends or, or habits, uh, good or bad, from the different uh, athletes you work with from a given place? And, and if so, I don't, I don't what how do you how do you work with that how do you respond to that and, and I'll give an example um you know and and I'm speaking in general terms of course all the athletes that you coach on is from a given country do you see that they all make the same mistakes or do you see that they all have a great uh philosophy about one thing but maybe they're kind of um harboring some some uh inherent affinity for really bad habits or some old school philosophies or some myths that they hang on to for some reason. Just generally, how does culture influence uh, endurance training principles in the in your experience? I need to be very cautious not to make any enemies. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I, I, know we're, I know we're talking in generalizations here, but I'm just curious if you see any indication of that. Oh, uh, yes, for sure. Uh, it's, it is from cult, culture to culture or from country to country. Actually, you can see those distinctive uh, perception of things or, or uh, inabilities of doing certain things. Uh, for example, I won't name the, the, the nation, but uh, <laughs> one of the countries in, in the Nordic region, they are, they, they, they are not willing to suffer. If, and don't get me wrong, I mean... the some uh some part of the training is or comes through suffering like writing a lot of, in zone four or doing your time trial is not it shouldn't be easy if you want a result it shouldn't be easy and uh, this is what kind of some some of some of them are really really kind of soft and and you need to find the approach and and kind of tailor your training um I wouldn't say philosophy maybe, but, but actually what you are prescribing them. So for example, if I would give somebody uh, who is already a uh, somewhat accomplished athlete, uh, let's say, I don't know, two by two by 10 minutes at, at uh, upper zone four workout, I couldn't do that 
for this for this nation for sure like the the most probably like nine out of out of, out of ten people will would fail and and uh, would ask me like question why why do i need to do that i there's some other ways around that and maybe this and that would work so kind of they are avoiding that some of the uh, other nations um especially this this one uh big nation our, <laughs> we call it our big neighbor <laughs> you can uh, try yeah, to guess yeah. who, I, who I can they guess. are i can uh, guess yeah <laughs> and they they are actually uh, those athletes they need this tough love because that is how they they've been brought up and and this is what kind of comes with them uh they expect they, it. Are they of, expect it right to some yeah, degree yeah exactly that, that that's that is that is your duty or your coach uh your duty as a coach and uh getting back to this this uh respect thing by yelling on those athletes and and maybe not saying really nice things sometimes uh they do do not consider this as uh, as being unrespectful to them mm -hmm. this is you showing your kind of turf and and uh, and saying like listen you need to harden the f up and do this because i it's better for you so uh yes there are those those uh certain distinctive things um some uh, athletes I have coached over uh, on the other side of the globe, they are really, uh, how would I politely say that, they're not not saying uh, what they are thinking. So kind of they kind of mask uh, mask those those feelings, and you need to read between the lines in order to hmm. understand what they are actually saying to you. They're, you're talking so about Canadians, are aren't you? <laughs> no, to be to be honest, I have never coached. Any athlete from from Canada, so no, that's that's not Canadian. Oh, but okay. um, you 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 know better than I. <laughs> <laughs> I've never coached Trevor, but I sit across from him at a podcast uh, in a studio all the time, and I have to read between the lines. Well, look, I, I will tell you, <laughs> in British Columbia, when I was training up there, it was definitely tough love. Like I loved that Hu Chang would do things like we would have a nine a.m. ride if you showed up at nine o one you would have to catch the ride. Yeah, right. Discipline. If you got a flat tire, group didn't stop for you. Mm -hmm. You had to chase back on. Mm -hmm. Like it was, the, there was no giving an inch. And I love that. Uh, that actually is really motivating for me, that pushing you, getting you angry, that sort of stuff. And and I periodically talk to people like, stop being so tough on yourself, Trevor. I'm like, no, leave me alone. <laughs> That's, this works for me. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I need that. Uh, so I fully get it. Uh, you're talking about that big country next to you that we won't name. Uh, I'm actually very much like them. So, and, and that's something <laughs> I, I got, got in Canada for sure. Well, I, you are much more polite than them. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to disparage an entire nation, but um, yeah, you're a fan of, of uh, Rocky films too, which I, I don't know, there might be some uh, relationship between I mean, just a slight, just a slight relationship there. <laughs> we won't go any farther with that. In my workout no. room, so my second bedroom is a workout room, and I have on the wall one of my all-time favorite quotes, which is from Rocky Balboa, and it starts with, "Let me tell you something you already know: life ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a <laughs> mean and nasty place that will knock you to your knees and keep you there if you let it." There you go. So there's, there's my philosophy. There's your philosophy <laughs> when it comes to you. Well, you know, 
I don't know what the the benefit is of discussing it. I just thought it was very interesting to understand a little bit more about how people um, bring a little bit to the, the their own training and and how coaches can effectively work with that. And uh, it's nice to hear that. Um, you say that the things we've d- discussed on the program many times before, uh, particularly the, the aspect of coach being a psychologist, you know, part of me is, um, gets a little anxious hearing that I know it's so true. The other thing, the thing that makes me anxious is the fact that most coaches are not actually psychologists. So they're, they're basing a lot of what they say on things they know through experience, sometimes gut feeling, sometimes they're probably guessing. Um, and that's where I get a little worried that sometimes you could, you might say the wrong thing because you just don't know. Not that, a, not that a trained psychologist always knows either. This stuff is complex. So it does take a lot of experience, building rapport, um, understanding, uh, trying to understand through a lot of communication what a, a given athlete needs and modifying accordingly. So, well, that, that are, those are the questions for today. And, and Giannis, I must say, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on the show. Again, Velibor, Dokic, out there, if you're listening, thank you very much for bringing Giannis to our attention. Um, Train to Win Coaching is based in Latvia. R- Giannis, you're right now at a training camp in Spain. Thank you for making the time and for joining us on Fast Talk. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was a real joy having you, and your, your answers were fantastic. So, really appreciate your taking this time. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Giannis Muzinch, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.